Hello, I'm Chief Security Officer Fred Burton, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. To learn more about Stratfor Worldview, ThreatLens, or Stratfor's custom advisory services, visit us at stratfor.com. Things like dengue, fever, Ebola, Zika, avian influenza, and H1N1, when those things came out, they really impact who's willing to go where, and who's allowed on a plane, and what's deemed safe or not. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast from Stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. On this episode of the podcast, we're trying something a little bit different. We'll be speaking with the co-founder and head of Global Aware, a non-profit company that develops short-term volunteer programs in international environments. Kimberly Haley Coleman's first career focused mostly on international business development. She helped launch CNBC.com, where she managed and supervised all product development efforts and trained the entire on-air staff. She's also created strategic international relationships and developed a globalization strategy for many businesses, including a unique aerospace company in Houston called Team Encounter, and she'll be describing that in a moment, which you won't want to miss. In her current job, sending volunteers around the world, Miss Haley Coleman has to manage risk to businesses, to people on the ground, and also to the communities that host GlobalWare's volunteers. So on today's episode of Stratford Talks, Emily Donahue asked about strategies for managing risk. Kimberly Haley Coleman is a co-founder of GlobalWare, a nonprofit company that develops short-term volunteer programs in international communities. The idea is to provide an immersive experience for people who want to give back or pay it forward to communities that combines volunteerism and tourism, environmental and cultural awareness, and what many have said is a life-changing experience. Kimberly, thank you so much for being with us on Stratfor Talks. Thank you, Emily, for having me. I really appreciate it. I tried to describe your company, but I fear I may have been woefully underplaying it. Can you give me a more accurate description? Oh, goodness. You know, it's it's the thing we struggle with, right? One of the ways I will frequently answer that is I'll say it's sort of a mini Peace Corps experience. You know, the typical Peace Corps experience, it's a two and a half year commitment. And this is a one week experience that's similar to the Peace Corps. So yes, you're giving back side by side with locals as equals on some project that they've chosen that's important to them that will hopefully make a really big impact in a short period of time. You're very careful. The company is very careful about what activities it chooses and which communities it goes into. Can you explain why? Yes. Well, there's a lot around all of that to unpack. Um, First and foremost, while we're looking for communities that have need, um, we also want them to be communities that are culturally expansive and not necessarily a replication of whatever culture our volunteers are coming from so that they're able to kind of see life from a different perspective. But it doesn't mean we're necessarily in the communities of the greatest need. Uh, we have been asked to have programs in places like Somalia, Darfur, Afghanistan, Syria, 
And in terms of risk and liability, we just aren't in a position to go into war-torn countries. We're not uh, any sort of paramilitary-style organization. So we really have to watch in terms of safety where we're putting our volunteers. And then the projects we work on have quite a few criteria. We're not operating heavy equipment and machinery. We're not high on ladders. We're not doctors of South Borders, so we are not handling bodily fluids and things like that. So we really have a very specific set of criteria that we're working with in terms of finding both the projects and locations where we can put our volunteers. What made you get into this line of work? You know, this isn't your first career. You've had a definitely an internationally focused career, but but how did you jump from that to uh, volunteerism? Yes. And, you know, I think of, of what I do as being um, just as much connected to culture as anything else. And actually, so my, my education, I, um, you know, I double majored in French and art history and minored in Italian and marketing. I always had an interest in other cultures. I traveled a lot growing up. And, and then I did get a master's in art history, which I see as um, the study of other cultures in uh, many sense. And then uh, my MBA was in international business. So there's always been that international piece. I've always kind of been drawn to that. And I've done that on in the for-profit and the nonprofit world. Uh, in the last position I had, which was a company, we put basically dead bodies into space. We would sell canisters, uh, people's ashes to put into space. Oh my and, gosh, wait, slow and, down. That is, that yeah, is it's an unusual thing. It still exists. Space Services International, really interesting, wonderful company. And it's not U.S. citizens that are primarily interested in this. This is, um, you know, a market for German, Japanese, um, Brazilians. And so those are the places that um, business would take me. And I would go to those places and be there over the weekend for business. And since I, I had already done a lot of traditional travel, wasn't as interested in just seeing the sites again. And so I started trying to volunteer. And at the time, all I could find were programs that were really intended more for high school or college kids because they were, you know, five, six, seven weeks or several months long. And obviously, uh, uh, if you're working in any sort of traditional position in the United States, we, do, we don't get eight weeks off for vacation. Right. So, But from understandably their point of view, that in order to be worth their time to stop and train someone, it wasn't worth it from their perspective if they weren't going to be staying long. And I understood that. And yet I felt that it was precisely that person that was working 60 hours a week in a really tightly constructed life that had the most to benefit from this kind of experience of getting out of this dog-eat-dog rat's wheel world of feeling uplifted and engaged with humanity and coming alive again. So I started organizing my own volunteer opportunities, which I really loved. And so I would ask other people if they wanted to come. And I was always shocked with just a simple email, how quickly I found other people who wanted to come along and do it with me. You know, there are so many great volunteer organizations out there but still, many that I found were either um, really soft skills based, where you were like a candy striper or a teacher's aide. But um, just coming from the environment I was in and having short time frame, you really can't be a teacher in 
five days. So, you know, this is why we are doing things like we're installing concrete floors in the homes of single moms in Guatemala. We're assembling wheelchairs for landmine victims in Cambodia. You know, we're building these adobe stoves and things that we should make a concrete difference, uh, but that can be done in a short period of time. Our focus is about 35 hours of project work. We usually have three to five planned but optional cultural activities that are designed to be less touristy than what a normal tourist experience would entail. So, for example, in Costa Rica, we'll have a, a coffee tasting and we'll do a nature walk. And, you know, you're not going to be spending a lot of time at museums and churches on our programs. And in terms of those experiences that we have, that's always changing. So, you know, we, we added a Puerto Rico program after Hurricane Maria. And then if an area becomes unsafe or unstable, it might drop off. So uh, those are always changing. But one of our biggest challenges is really trying to bridge the cultural divide. In many of the countries where we are working, the local culture is not focused first and foremost on maximum productivity level. I think about Peru, for example, where the average Peruvian person is spending about six hours a day with their family and friends. They're actually spending more of their time on what we all say is more important. So it's a really big, beautiful, wonderful thing about their culture. But on the flip side, they really don't have access to, for example, um, medical care and education in the same way that many people in the U.S. might. And so what we're really trying to do is give our volunteers a view on that and still satisfy their need to be productive. So they're coming in saying, I want to get as much done as I possibly can. And the locals are saying, that's great, but we also don't want to work 12-hour day. And we want to sit and ha drink our coca tea, and we want to get to know our volunteers. Mm. We've got structures in place to really try and help bring out some of these differences. So, for example, on day one in Costa Rica, they'll have a, a topic every day. And I believe our first topic in Costa Rica is always to say, okay, what is your street address? And our volunteer, John, might say, you know, 7169 uh, Hillside. If you ask a Costa Rican, their address, if you translate it from Spanish to English, will be, you know, 400 meters south of the white church, 30 minutes east of Cartago province without a zip code. It's a paragraph because they don't have street addresses in Costa Rica. And we try and point out, well, how is this? How did it come to be? Why is it? How does it affect and change their culture? And, and bring to the surface things that your average tourist would leave without knowing mm -hmm. so that when they're coming home, they're kind of looking at the world through a different lens. Whether you're in voluntourism, for want of a better word, or the private sector, being prepared for international travel can be complicated. You know, you've mentioned that you pull people out of unsafe situations and stuff, but what do you do ahead of time? First of all, I should say we're very actively monitoring the State Department sheets that come from Canada, the U.S., and England. They do a pretty good job of any even minor um, possible situations, such as an expected protest or strike. But then we also monitor the CDC. We really feel like that's the best source of alerts relating to health and things like dengue fever, 
Ebola, Zika, you know, they're all, this is another thing that's always changing. You know, I, avian influenza and H1N1, when those things came out, they really impact who's willing to go where and who's allowed on a plane and what's deemed safe or not. However, we also, our staff locally who are based there, looking at that situation, and those can change too. So, for example, in Puerto Rico, it's not just about, hey, is there a hurricane coming? Is there a protest? Is there a war? You know, it's not just that. It's also, can we get the materials right now to even put roofs on houses, given how difficult it is to get donations delivered in Puerto Rico? You know, there are so many different pieces, and it's our coordinator that on the ground is keeping track of those types of issues. Mm-hmm. What are the travelers expected to know in advance? What, well, what do they do for their own safety? We talk to most of our volunteers before they go. We've always got people answering phones and emails and so on. And we give them different information at different times. So when they first register, they get a packet showing what to expect to pack and what the weather typically is, what the projects are. And then a few weeks before, they get information about their coordinator and where they're going to see them and all of that. So really, anybody could go and volunteer at a school or church anywhere in the world, and they wouldn't need an organization like us. So we're really trying to fill that role of having everything organized, having the materials ready, and being the entity that will keep everyone involved, um, informed and organized. And that's really our piece. We'll get back to Kimberly Haley Coleman, Executive Director of Global Wear, in just one moment. And if you're interested in learning more, we'll share some links in our show notes. Global Wear as a business works on the premise that knowing and experiencing other cultures in other parts of the world is not just a meaningful experience, but an absolutely necessary one. Stratfor's Worldview Enterprise platform provides critical information to businesses and professionals who need to know how emerging world events will affect them, their employees, and their businesses. With customizable maps, charts, and graphs of the political, economic, and security landscape of the countries where you do business, Worldview Enterprise is a critical tool for business planning. If you're not already a Stratfor member, you can learn more about individual, team, and enterprise subscriptions at stratfor.com slash subscribe. And now, back to Emily Donahue and Kimberly Haley Coleman. Every traveler is different. Of course, uh, the people that come to your organization are motivated differently probably than somebody who wants to go on a three-week cruise to relax. But it would be, I imagine, impossible to foresee every risk for every traveler. Do people ever wander off the path that you've set for them? We usually have groups of 10 and we have our coordinator for every 10 people. Our coordinator is only keeping track of those 10 people and we are not going into areas like Manhattan where people can really scatter and get lost. We're in smaller areas where it's easier to keep up. Now there are a couple of exceptions. Um, our program in Cambodia is in Siem Reap. Siem Reap is a very lively, pedestrian-friendly place, and there's a lot of freedom to walk around. So when we talk to people that have kids, we just let them know what the environment is like and let them know um, what to expect. Because our coordinator is you know, with the volunteers from the moment they eat breakfast until they go to bed at night. So, But in terms of risk, 
I would say, as you had mentioned, that every traveler is different. We do have um, recommendations for some people against going some places. So, for example, Cusco, which is at like 13,000 feet altitude. So anybody who has asthma, breathing issues, that kind of thing, we would steer them away from Cusco because of that. Or if anyone has any difficulty regulating body temperature, where our programs um, in Southeast Asia are anyway, are pretty warm and tropical. So they're not going to be good for uh, people who have issues with heat, where even if we have air conditioning at the accommodations where they're staying during the day, often wherever we're doing our project work, we will not. There's always a risk in the places we're going since we're focused on going where there is real need. And usually there's a component of this need where it's uh, a factor of economics, where they materially usually have less. And so in those kinds of environments, there can be a higher risk for petty theft than one might have from their uh, their hometown. So the risk, of, like you it's just not a good idea to go into a crowded marketplace with um, valuables that are visible or even having to watch your cell phone in a place where uh, the GDP is so much lower. If somebody's carrying around a $1,200 phone, which is common these days, mm-hmm. you have to be more careful watching your phone. But the violent crime incident in most of the places where we are is much lower than it is in your standard city in the United States. Mm-hmm. So the risk of bodily harm is usually lower, but for um, the possibility of petty theft is is generally higher. I once went on a trip and we um, got briefed by the risk people who said exactly the same thing that you just said, which is petty theft is more likely to be your your experience. But there was a certain amount of um, corruption, I guess you would say, or graft. Do you ever run into anything like that? Fortunately, we haven't seen a whole lot. Because our coordinator is there, um, our coordinator is able to guide all those things. Now, I I will point out that in countries like Costa Rica, for example, up until quite recently, you did have to pay an extra $40 airport tax to leave the country. And a lot of people, if you weren't on our program or didn't pay attention or read our materials or listen to the corner, you might think that that was um, a a grab. Um, But they have just recently gotten rid of that, where now it's put into the price of the ticket. And these are the kinds of things that are always changing. So this is an area where it is helpful to have somebody who is notifying um, our volunteers of what's going on, what to expect, how much to pay for this or for that, where to get the best value for your money in terms of getting, bringing money into a country, Um, because that's changed too. You know, there was a time when traveler's checks were the primary safe currency, and I would never tell anyone to do that now. You know, those things are always changing. While we have seen in terms of uh, bribes where we're more likely to encounter that, the volunteer, it might be invisible to the volunteer. So, for example, if materials um, are expected and needed at a particular location, you know, the idea is all the materials are there before the volunteers get there. Well, there have been times when we've been asked for bribes to get materials there on time. I mean, we've seen that is where we would see it. And the volunteers are less likely to see Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. In the time that you've had this company, how many people have you sent into one of these life-changing experiences? I'm going to guess that we'll probably have 1,500 volunteers this year. Hmm. 
You know, and it, it ranges because the first few years, you know, we would just have a couple hundred. Um, and I have to say one of the big shifts for us has been working with more and more employers and companies as opposed to individuals where um, so someone like uh, Salesforce that gives their employees six paid days a year to volunteer. Mm-hmm. So they will go on a, a global wear program for those days. And many companies will have contribution matching to the charity of your choice. So they can go and pay for half of the program fee and, and often their employer will pay for the other half. Um, it's an extension of the same idea of who we've always catered to a really busy working professional U.S. volunteer. Um, the other thing I'll say is um, we're also a Canadian charity. And so um, our number of Canadian volunteers has really skyrocketed. Hmm. We did not have Canadian charity status to start out with. And so that's really been a, a big change. Do they want to do the same kind of trips? Yeah. And actually, in many ways, you know, a lot of the Canadian companies, you know, were ahead of the curve in terms of social responsibility and corporate social responsibility. So that's a very natural fit for them. Hmm. You've grown by leaps and bounds since you launched. Um, What do you see for the future? You know, right now, it sure looks like there's going to be even more of a tendency and growth toward companies. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the kinds of work we do through the churches they attend, if they attend one. Um, and they might have even thought of these kinds of programs being offered through their schools. And we have a number of schools that regularly go with us. Volunteering abroad with your employers is relatively new, and it just seems to be hitting a chord. In fact, um, I put on my LinkedIn a number of, of articles out there about the number of millennials that really care about this and expect it from their employers. And 20 years ago, it's not something one would ever even think that an employer would offer. And is it going to be more environmentally focused or? There are different organizations that focus on different things. And some of our initiatives are environmental. They're on a small scale. So, for example, when we are building adobe stoves for the homes in Cusco where we're working, the way the traditional home is, they've, they're built it directly on the mud floor and the walls are made out of mud and everyone's living in one room. And when they're cooking, they're putting all of the firewood on that mud floor and they're breathing in all the smoke. When we go and build one of these Lorena adobe stoves and then we put a vent uh, pipe out from the stove, it takes the majority of smoke out of the home so that they're not inhaling it. And it reduces the amount of, you need one eighteenth the amount of fuel to keep the fire going and hot. So it helps with deforestation. So this kind of environmental initiative, uh, we're always looking for doing more of. Um, but we, I also should say we are very much keen to let our local communities decide what projects they want our help with. We're not going to go tell them what they need. People cannot imagine how much fun this kind of experience is. You know, the um, we have a large amount of repeat business. Um, in fact, I just posted um, a TV segment that was done on one of our volunteers who I think he's been on eight of our programs and they did a little thing on ABC News. And it just shows you how addictive it is. You you know, some people might have in their heads, oh, gosh, hard work. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sweat. You get there and you're sitting there next to these kids doing this, seeing what a difference it makes in your life. 
And it's hard to imagine what that does to a person. I, you know, I'll never forget about 20 years ago, we were giving wheelchairs to these kids and the kids who were receiving the wheelchairs were pleasantly reacting to the experience that this is a nice thing, but the parents were crying and being a parent, looking at another parent that is seeing a different future and different possibility and having that moment that of solidarity and recognizing what just happened, what a beautiful thing that is. So it's, it's meaningful and it's fun. And, and, you know, there are so many organizations that do similar work and, and Habitat is one of them. So for people who can't travel, but want to do this, this, you can do this kind of experience with other organizations to experience that. There was a study done by Brookings. They were tasked with looking at what is the cost-benefit relationship of investing in a volunteer, like in the Peace Corps, versus the military. They basically said, so for the $400,000 a year fully loaded cost of what we put into a soldier where they're in a tank and we're paying for their medical care and their insurance and all of that, and they're going through Afghanistan in a tank, uh, and what is the community think about that where they are um, stationed. And then the $16,000 a year that we're spending fully loaded on a Peace Corps volunteer. And what is the outcome of that? If they're teaching in a small village in, say, Afghanistan, what is the outcome? And they had a very difficult time monetizing it, saying what the value of it was. The outcome wasn't that we don't need a military, because obviously we do. The outcome basically said how we are underutilizing our soft power, the power of having all these people volunteer and doing good work as ambassadors. What does that do for the world? What does that do for safety, for people looking at our country in a certain way? And um, it's powerful, really, and and anyone can be a part of that. Kimberly Haley Coleman is the executive director of Global Wear, a nonprofit company that develops short-term volunteer programs in international environments. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Emily, thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this conversation with Stratfor's Emily Donahue and Kimberly Haley Coleman, executive director of Global Wear. We'll include details on Global Wear in our show notes. If you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you with analytic tools to visualize and anticipate those areas in the world where your interests and operations are potentially at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com slash enterprise. And if you have any questions about this podcast in particular, or even an idea for the next one, please email us at podcast at stratfor.com. And if you have a moment, we'd love it if you left a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. We really do appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence, links, and fun facts about what goes into forecasting world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Stratfall. Thanks again for listening. 